This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 68, recorded on October 13, 2017. I'm your host, Tim Cripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. I'm here along with a co-host and co-expert, Neelie Shaw. Welcome, Neelie. Happy to be here. Good to have you again. And uh, we have a new expert interviewee and potential future co-host, depending on his interests, since he's local, uh, Dr. Dean Lee. Welcome, Dean. Hi, Tim. Thanks. Good to have you here. So our topic today is a hot topic, and that is CAR T-cells, chimeric antigen receptor T-cells, and we'll broaden it to discuss other cellular therapies as well. So I think the point of today, we've all been reading in the newspaper, we've all been Hearing about it, Dean, for those of you who don't know him, has been on our local television station and radio station, seems like every other day to talk about this topic because it's so hot. And, you know, I was quoted in the newspaper, in many newspaper articles, actually, that this is the, you know, most amazing thing I've seen in my lifetime, which I'll still stand by at the moment. So I think it's worthy of a podcast. The other thing, I was giving a resident lecture this week up on the ward, and I thought, you know, I'm going to talk about Cartes. And so I started out by saying, Sure, you guys have read about it and heard about it, and they're all like, uh, what? What? Uh? You know, okay, those are pediatric residents. I don't think they reflect just those here, hopefully. But it probably reflects two things. One, they're busy, and it's hard to keep up with the latest and greatest. But also, maybe even despite all the attention, people still don't understand what they are. And this CAR-T business has been described as a living drug. It's been described as the first gene therapy approval. The FDA was recently in the news this week for another gene therapy approval, which is the first for genetic disease, a rare uh, inherited vision issue for gene therapy of the retina. But I think this is certain uh, CAR T cells were the first really use of a gene therapy product that's been FDA approved for for a disease. I think that's probably true. But maybe why don't we start, Dean? You are a professor of pediatrics here at Ohio State. You are the director of the cellular therapy and immunotherapy programs, both at Ohio State James Cancer Center, Wexner Medical Center, and Nationwide Children's Hospital. So you're probably best suited to explain to us what the heck are CAR T-cells. Sure. So T-cells, to begin with, um, are the the lymphocytes, the white blood cells in your body that are what uh, typically you're trying to train when you get uh, a live vaccine. So when you go to the, the take your kid to the pediatrician's office and they get a vaccination for chicken pox or measles, mumps, rubella. Those are all the live vaccinations we give. And they are intending to try to train your immune system to recognize those viruses so that when you actually encounter the real virus, you've already got a pre-made set of troops that are ready to, to go and attack and they know who the enemy is. Um, T-cells are really, really specific. So when you get your vaccination for chickenpox, it doesn't help at all for measles. You have to get a measles vaccine. You can train your T-cells to be to, to recognize the chickenpox, but that's all they are going to recognize for the rest of their life. So they are exquisitely sensitive and specific to that protein, uh, the, the chickenpox protein. So um, other parts of your immune system 
make uh, proteins that go around and, and bind to viruses and kind of soak them up, and that's your B cells. And what a chimeric antigen receptor does is take the recognition piece from a B cell and kind of stitch it onto a T cell so that you can force a T cell to be specific to the thing that you want it to recognize. And in this case, um, that is a, a special protein on the surface of leukemia cells, um, one particular type of leukemia, B cell leukemia, and that protein is called CD19. So the T cell uh, is basically you're taking someone's T cells that are already potentially directed at vaccinia or mm -hmm. some other virus or some foreign protein, a bacterium protein, and you're redirecting them to the cancer. Correct. Correct. They're still going to maintain the direction to that virus or that foreign bacterial protein, correct? Right. They still have adding this to them. Correct. They still have their own receptors to whatever it is they originally learned to recognize. And now you're sort of redirecting them to recognize something else also. Right. Now there's a variant of CAR T's called TCRTs. Yes. Right? Uh-huh. You tell us what those are. <laughs> those are if you um, if you had a T cell that recognized chicken pox and you didn't want to wait for the person to develop their own T cells, or, or for some reason they were not able to mount a response to chickenpox, you would take that receptor gene and transfer it to more T cells. So you're, it's almost like you're, you're copying what the original T cell made, and you're just letting more T cells um, recognize the same thing. Now the difference there is those T cells, the TCR, T cell receptor T cells, are recognizing a peptide that's presented in the class one major histocompatibility complex or HLA complex. That's, so that can be, it can be directed at something that's actually inside the cell because it's, that protein's processed and presented on the cell surface. It doesn't have to be directed at something that's only expressed on the cell surface like CAR Ts do. Correct. So the normal receptor on a T cell um, recognizes whatever it's seeing, chickenpox, whatever, um, only in the context of how it's being presented. So I, I think of this as being um, a little bit like a, a picture inside of a passport. Um, the, the, the normal T cell can only recognize who you are when it's presented inside of an official document. Where a B cell and the, the receptor that's on a CAR T cell can recognize that picture anywhere. And it can be, as long as it's right on the surface. Um, so you're, you're less restricted in how you teach that cell to recognize the enemy. And in this case, they could never recognize the same um, CD19 in, in an MHC, so they have to see it sort of blind on the surface. Um, but it broadens what's available for targets uh, to be directed by T-cells. So people are making T-cells or CAR T-cells against not only tumors, but um, virus, viruses. So are those mm -hmm. the TCR T-cells? Or are those CAR T cells the antiviral ones? Or both? They, they can be either. If the virus leaves on the, on the cell that it infects, leaves its own proteins out there on the surface, then the, a CAR T cell can see it. If it hides itself inside the cell and all of the, the virus proteins are inside the cell, then a CAR won't work. You have to have the TCR. Okay, so I think we've got that hopefully explain for everybody the difference between because people are going to be hearing about both mm -hmm. it's easy to get them confused in the bottom line though is they're both t cells that are redirected to something and so they're yeah. probably going to have all the same other things we're going to talk about side effects challenges with manufacturing etc right mm -hmm. 
Yes. Okay. For the most part. Yeah. And <laughs> we, then, we can get to the yeah. difference, minor differences. Okay. Yeah. And then we'll get to the, because yeah. people, those aren't the, T cells aren't the only cell type that kill things that people are harnessing. And we'll talk about some of those later. But let's stick right now to the CAR T because that's what's been FDA approved and the most exciting. So how many different com- companies and or institutions right now are trying to engineer their own versions of these things? Um, across all, uh, and you have to count ours. Yeah. <laughs> so the 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 one that's approved, the one that's against CD19, there's at least a half dozen companies that are all going after that same protein, and probably as many or more other institutions that are doing it on an academic level that are independent of the companies. But because there's such wide uh, potential for them, the number of people that are working on the same concept of a CAR T-cell to different targets is probably hundreds. Uh, I mean, it's it's all across uh, the U.S. and Europe, individual research labs that are all trying to find new targets to go after with the same approach. Like I said, a hot topic. Yeah. So with these CAR T-cells, when, when you have all these different uh, companies and, and academia that are uh, developing these, with the T-cells themselves, are these a product that can be made as an off-the-shelf product, or is it something that you have to do on a patient-by-patient basis? And maybe how does that compare a little bit to some other cell therapy options that are out there as well, like monoclonal antibodies or, or actual cell therapeutics? Yeah, so that question leads into probably five more parts of our conversation <laughs> as we get going, um, because it impacts the how well this can be applied. It impacts the safety. It impacts the cost. Um, and it impacts um, the competition. So right now, the the one that's approved and all of the current company approaches to targeting leukemia through CD19 with a CAR T-cell require that you take a patient's own blood and you generate those CAR T-cells from their blood and give it back to them. And that means that these are truly... Um, more custom-made products than anything we've ever done before on a regular basis. It's a much more labor-intensive, much more expensive. Yeah, and and although the gene that they're putting in to do this is the same for every patient, the actual product, which you would consider the drug, is not just the gene by itself. It's the combination of the gene exerting its effect through the through your individual cells. And so every product they make is is really a, a different product. Um, every one of them has to pass its own release criteria. Everyone, everyone has to, every product has to be sort of safety tested, and and that's making a a big impact on the pharmaceutical industry trying to figure out how they manage that, and on the FDA, um, to be fair, on how they regulate it. We don't have very many other examples like that. But what the field would like to do, if we can make it happen, is to not have to custom make that same product for every patient but to be able to make one product that as a living cell, any person would accept or accept at least long enough and not be rejected long enough to do its job. That would be great. Off the shelf product. Off the shelf product. So let's go back to the beginning a little bit. We've seen that it's a huge field now. There's a lot of promise, obviously, with the first FDA approval. Uh, How did it start? Where did it start? What as a little bit of the history. We don't need to linger on this too long, but I think it's always good to get a historical perspective. And the fact that I've heard Carl June, who invented these, <laughs> couldn't get an NIH grant to support it, which speaks to the, you know, the, the uh, 
quality of peer review. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, anyway. So the first concept for a chimeric androgen receptor uh, was, uh, was published by Dr. Eschar back in the 1990s. So chimeric is, is taken after this Greek mythologic beast that is part lion head and part uh, eagle wings and a snake for the tail. It's, it's, it's this composite animal of lots of parts of other things. So in this case, what uh, Dr. Eschar did is to think about, could I take the recognition portion of one protein and fuse it to the signaling portion of another and create something totally brand new that would make it cause what I want to happen, but by recognizing something that normally wouldn't, wouldn't have that effect. The chimeric piece means you're, you're splicing in different portions of different proteins. Proteins that normally exist in, in your body, but they were, aren't normally linked that way. Dr. Eschar first came up with a concept of mixing these different proteins and getting a response. But it wasn't until that was built on a little bit and we understood T-cell signaling better to know which proteins had to be on the inside of the cell and in what order and in what combination made a signal that was robust enough to actually get the T-cells to grow and do what they needed to do. And that took some time. There's, there's several portions of this crazy fused protein um, and lots of, of research around every little piece of it, the piece that goes through the membrane, the piece that is the stalk that the um, receptor part is fused to, different combinations of signaling, and all of them are kind of um, at different stages of development or have been combined at different times. So what Carl June did that really made this sort of leap to the field is identify one particular combination that led to the most activated form of T-cell when they recognize the target. Um, and that was with having this protein on the inside called 4-1-BB. So Escher had the concept, June made it work. Right. And so Carl June at UPenn developed this and it ended up being tested in children first, or not necessarily first, but certainly approved first. So um, with Steve Grupp running those trials, mm -hmm. And that's what's led to this uh, Novartis, this approval by Novartis once they acquired it. Do you know any of the history there or any um, tidbits about what was happening? Yeah, so they decided that they wanted to try it in children first in part because uh, the recognition of that leukemia was the strongest. Not only did it have the target on the surface, but it had lots of other... Uh, molecules that were um, going to be helpful as co-stimulatory molecules to the T-cell. And because they felt that this was a situation when those patients are, are really have exhausted all other therapies, there's lots of the target to go after, and so it kind of made sense to, to try it in that setting. But uh, the ALL occurs in, adults, occurs in adults too, so what compelled them to do the kids as well? And the reason I'm asking yeah. is we talk a lot on this podcast about drug development and adults versus kids and the business case for adults versus kids, et cetera, et cetera. So to have a case where the FDA approval for a specific drug is in kids first is pretty phenomenal yeah. and just kind of curious about dissecting out how that came to be. So I know the response rate in kids is much better, especially if you compare the leukemia versus lymphoma and that the the existence of uh, the marker of CD19 as a, as a consistent marker for adult leukemia, for pediatric leukemia is better uh, than adult leukemia. But I don't know if that was an, an a priori 
um, decision or if it came after uh, doing multiple uh, sure. treatments and finding the one that it worked best yeah. in. But it, it is still clear that the responses uh, in children um, ha are outperforming the responses we see in adults. Interesting. Okay, well, let's talk about the responses in children. So I've got some data here from some of their trials. Uh, first thing to note is after Novartis acquired it, they renamed it from CAR-T19 or <laughs> CART-19 to Tisogen Lec Lucil. <laughs> so kudos to anyone who can follow me on that. Also known as Chemriah, K-Y-M, presumably derived from Chimera, although that's with a C, but still. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the seminal trial that they did that led to the FDA approval, just to read a few numbers here, they actually had three trials, uh, 68 patients in one, 29 in another, 59 in another, and those numbers don't usually lead to drug approvals in adult world, so that is one advantage of doing something in kids first. You can usually get an approval with fewer patients because of the rarer numbers. They had an overall response rate of, in the three trials, meaning, and the response rates were defined as complete responses, either with or without plate recovery, I think it was, 83%, 69%, and 93% for those three trials. And that's pretty dramatic, yeah. usually with new therapies. And know, again, we'd like to days. emphasize to the listeners that this, these are patients who had relapsed refractory disease, meaning they had failed, in many cases, multiple other prior studies. So these are the hardest cases, and the fact they're having complete response. You know, that's a good point, because I remember plenty of times in my earlier career taking care of patients with leukemia that relapsed, and we had nothing to do for them. It literally was a death sentence. So I actually was quoted in one newspaper, I'll say this is a Lazarus drug, yeah, and I was yeah. bringing the dead back to the living. So that's a really important point where those frustrations have been enormous where you know you've got these cells growing in front of you in the patient you can pull their blood out a drop of blood look at them microscope, see these cells and you can't get at them yep. and and now at least for you know upwards of 80 percent we're having success now this is uh the day 30 results mm -hmm. and i think those numbers drop uh, in terms of uh at six months instead of 83 in the one trial it was down to 75 percent uh instead of 69 it was uh, down to 66, so that was pretty durable in that trial. And then in the third trial, 93% down to 76%. So although a vast majority of patients go into remission, there are still some that continue to relapse. Mm -hmm. So it's very effective treatment, but not complete. So there's still work to be done. It's not 100% at the beginning, and it's not completely durable long-term, although certainly the, the original patient that has been written about many times, Emily Whitehead, yeah. you know, is, is five years plus out now and doing well. And there's plenty of other patients who seem to have had, you know, long-term complete cures. So do you have comments about the effectiveness of these products? Sure. So I think the first one is to kind of add on to Neelay's comment that these response rates are with a single dose of the drug all by itself. And that's something we never do in oncology. We never give a single drug, all, well, except for maybe um, Gleevec. <laughs> <laughs> right, but then it's but, daily, but, you know, for a long it, period of time. Yeah, yeah. Um, for, for leukemia, I mean, we're, our whole world has been built around combining and, and doing multiple cycles over and over again. So, um, so the response rates were, were additionally dramatic because of that, to see that you could completely get someone in a remission with one dose uh, and with no other combination. So the sustained remission 
problem. Um, and the, if I'm right, I think the numbers um, that you were saying it kind of dropped down to is in relapse-free survival? Uh, correct. So that's a little bit of a combination of both um, the disease coming back and patients who are dying from, from toxicities. At that time point, probably less of them are, are toxicity related. Uh, but there is, you know, this is, we're still trying to cure cancer here, so this isn't aggressive therapy. There's still some toxicities that we'll probably talk about later. But the relapses, the, the disease coming back, is due to two different things. Either the cells that you gave didn't survive long enough, and they finally withered away. Those T cells that are supposed to go after a virus, uh, they went after the leukemia initially, but then they just got exhausted and, uh, and died off. And so they weren't there long enough to actually keep the person in long-term remission. Well, and there are cer certainly some products that didn't work at all. Right? Yes. That failed by that 30 days. So, right, right. Uh, we're, what you're talking about is the difference between that day 30 and the later. And the later one. Yeah, right? the, the reason we didn't even two. get to day 30 in some patients, it doesn't work. The cells didn't do their thing for yeah. whatever reason I think is unclear. Mm -hmm. Okay, so keep going. Yeah, so the, uh, that's true. So the, the, the first failure is a failure of the cells to do their job at all. The second failure is they do their job, but they peter out, and so then the cancer comes back. And then the third is they do their job, and they do it so well that, that nothing with CD19 survives. So the, the leukemia itself is forced to mutate and come back without having CD19 on the surface. And then those T cells can't do anything. If they don't have the target, they are completely oblivious. So to once the again, cancer is too smart for us sometimes. Sometimes. Do you know what percentage of those relapses are either loss of antigen or antigen escape, as you, as you mentioned, versus the T cells petering out? Uh, I don't remember the, the numbers on the top of my head, but it's in the, the low double digits. So the antigen escape one is somewhere like 10-ish percent. So that's a minority of, of yeah. them. Yeah. So cancer isn't always as smart. It's the failure <laughs> of our cells to do their job. Yeah. So given those results, do you guys go on record agreeing with me it's the most exciting thing you've seen in your lifetime besides your wives? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I qualify that, that it is a fantastic advance for a disease that uh, seems to be very susceptible to it. I have some hesitations with what's been out there in, in the zeitgeist about, you know, this is going to be available for, uh, you know, every cancer, and we're going to be able to expand that out. And I think that there's still a lot of hurdles that remain sure. there. Sure, I, I think we'll get into that. Yeah, but for this disease, but for this disease, yeah. that is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. For for our field of having kids on death's door that you give a single dose of a drug to, and they get up and walk out of the hospital and are cured forever of their cancers, as far as we know, right? Like you said about Emily, that's just pretty cool. Pretty cool. You did mention that. Uh, in that original cohort, there are toxicities. Mm -hmm. So can we chat, chat about that a little bit? Yeah, there's no free lunch. So no free lunch, we, yes. As we know well in our business. <laughs> so what are we costing? What are we paying? So, so the initial money? toxicities are toxicities that are related to the fact that, that our T cells are really powerful. And even when they do their normal job, you, you get the flu, and you have revved up your T cells to respond against this virus, you feel pretty pretty bad 
Um, and that's not just because of the virus. That is because of what your T cells are doing. They're becoming super activated and releasing these um, immune proteins called cytokines that tell your body to raise its temperature. That's why you get a fever. They tell your body to increase blood flow to every possible organ so that the cells can get there. And when you do that, you get all flushed and your blood pressure drops and your heart rate goes up. And, and sometimes they are so overwhelming that that response uh, causes what in in the case of these um, CAR T cells something that we're calling cytokine release syndrome the cytokines that are released are the the T cells are just being so robustly activated that the normal cytokines they make are overwhelming the patient and and that's actually what happened with with Emily Whitehead as well that it made her it was the response to the cancer that made her so sick um, not the cancer itself and the toxicities there are, as I mentioned, the, the, you know, your blood pressure, your, um, your capillaries leaking, and uh, fever. And you can tolerate the fever pretty well. Um, what generally tends to send patients to the intensive care unit is the fact that your blood pressure is dropping and you're having difficulty getting adequate oxygenation through wet lungs. So that's really been a, a focus of the early part of development of this therapy is figuring out how to get around that cytokine release syndrome and how to how to nurture patients through that initial toxicity so that once they're past the acute phase, they're surviving without their cancer. So let me throw in some numbers based on those three trials. Cytokine release syndrome was found in 78% in one trial, 90% in another, and 88% in another. So it seems to happen in almost everybody, but it didn't require ICU admission in all those because, like you said, fever, et cetera, mm -hmm. doesn't always require that. But about half of all those, so in the first trial, 46% required ICU admission and 46% in the second trial, and I don't have the number in the third trial. So, And about a third, 38%, 27%, and 27% required anti-cytokine therapy. So it's... It, it's a huge, it's not one of these rare complications. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a pretty significant proportion. What else happens to patients' side effects? There's a couple of studies. They didn't see it uh, in this one for, for chimeria, um, but there were some other similar CAR T cells that have um, caused uh, some neurologic complications. And it's actually 44% in one trial, 31% in another here. Yeah, so they've had, yes, so they've had some uh, neurologic complications. I don't think in this study any of them actually died from those neurologic complications. Uh, this is harder to figure out why. It doesn't seem to be as much associated to the cytokines like the cytokine release syndrome. And the same drug that we use to solve the cytokine release syndrome doesn't do anything really to the neurologic problems. So there are a few patients that have died of uh, brain swelling, cerebral edema. When, when they've had the opportunity to go back and look, it doesn't look like this is because of uh, leukemia in the brain. It doesn't look like it's because of the T cells actively infiltrating the brain. Um, there's some other, uh, either a secondary effect to the cytokine um, that isn't immediately stopped when you block the cytokine, or additional um, features of the of the receptor itself that somehow is triggering that response. Yeah, the deaths listed on these trials were mainly due to infections. So uh, the cytokine release syndrome, but the non-cytokine release syndrome yeah. deaths were from infection. So yeah. why would people be dying of infections if you're giving them all these T cells? So that's a, the last big side effect, and that's the late, uh, the long-term effect. You know, for for all of our cancer therapies, we have 
struggled with long-term effects. We give chemotherapy and radiation and cure somebody, but now we struggle with their, um, their growth, with um, some cognitive problems because of radiation to the brain, with metabolic problems because of chemotherapy and radiation. So in this case, the long-term side effect is none of those, which is great. We're glad to be rid of some of those toxicities. But you have now eliminated every cell in your body that has CD19. And we mentioned at the beginning that, that this therapy is specifically for B-cell leukemia, and it turns out that the other cell in your body that happens to have B-cell, that happens to have CD19, is a B-cell. And our B-cells make antibodies, and our B-cells are those other side of the immune system that respond to infections. So if you can't mount an, a response to new infections, because your B-cells are all gone, you're going to be more susceptible to them. Just related to that, it does cause, you know, patients have to get IVIG for right. prolonged period of time to replace what the B-cells normally do, but by and large, that's tolerable. Yeah, yeah. So there's another big side effect, empty wallet syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us why yeah. it costs so much. How much is it costing for these treatments and why? So what we've been told is that the, uh, the market price is $475,000 to make and sculpt uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> to make and distribute the product with one modifier to that and that's that in their negotiation for that set price um, they said that we will only charge patients who actually respond and get into remission and that's a day 30 and that's a day 30 measure so if they make the drug for you and you you get it and you um survive through the cytokine release syndrome, and at day 30, you don't achieve remission, you don't pay anything. Which and is pretty remarkable. Have you ever heard of anything like that before? For for that guarantee? Like, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like a, car, a warranty, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, then that, uh, and then on top of that is the additional hospital um, charges and everything like that. And, right. and what's the average length of stay? Right. Uh, That's just that? for making the cells. Right. It also doesn't count... Um, acquiring the cells. So okay. the patient first has to undergo an apheresis procedure to collect all the white blood cells from them. That's a separate process, which is somewhere around $5,000. Then they get sent to the company. In the meantime, you have to get something to keep your leukemia uh, in control while the company is making the cells, which takes three to four weeks. Then the cells come back. You get admitted to the hospital, you get your cells infused, all of that hospital stay, the infusion costs, if you go to the ICU, the ICU costs, antibiotics so could, keep you healthy, It could very reasonably be three to four weeks there as well. It could be if you yeah. got really sick and you're yeah. in the ICU. I don't know if they, they published in their um, results what the average hospital stay was. Uh, I don't recall it, but I'm sure it's somewhere. Yep. Yeah. They're, they're, the company is requiring patients to stay within a two-hour drive of wherever they're getting this therapy for, I believe it's four weeks maybe, um, just yeah. in case they have trouble. In that Most way. of the cytokine release syndrome starts within the first seven days. Yep. Um, there are some rare cases that are, that are late. But if you're, if you're already seeing a response to the disease, then it's in that disease response that you're likely to, uh, to ramp up your T-cells and, and start having CRS. I would guess that average hospitalization is probably somewhere around yep. seven. Average, assuming that some don't actually have to go in the hospital at all, but average is probably going to be somewhere around seven to ten days. Okay, we're over a half an hour already. There's two other 
related topics I want to talk about. Actually, three. One is the question that we got emailed. But the two topics are uh, using these for other cancers. Mm -hmm. Let's briefly talk about that, and let's talk about other types of cells. So other cancers. We know that you mentioned at the beginning you could redirect these T cells potentially to anything. So the, the key is really to find something these cells can go after or bind to uh, the, the lock and key that isn't on normal cells but is selectively on a particular tumor type, like GD2 on neuroblastoma. It is on some normal cells but presumably tolerable right. with pain. Right. But other, <laughs> What are the prospects for CAR Ts like Kimraya being licensed, targeted, FDA approved for other cancers? Yeah. I think it's very likely for other leukemias. Um, there are some promising targets for uh, multiple myeloma uh, and at least some hints of uh, potential, it, it, perhaps in a slightly different setting, but some potential for uh, AML. The biggest problem we have is that these proteins are all your own normal proteins. We're not going after a virus protein that's foreign. We're going after a protein that is normal to your own body. And cancer doesn't, for the most part, make brand new proteins. They make proteins that are your, the normal ones. They just do it abnormally. <laughs> <laughs> so, so as we mentioned, for this one, CD19 is on the leukemia. So it's a great target. It's also on normal B cells. It just happens that you can live without B cells. And, and there are actually people who have... Um, a uh, fairly common immunodeficiency that they did they lack B cells. So you can survive that. If you happen to have a protein that is on other cells um, in your body that you can't live without, then that's where we really have trouble. And so the the difficulty has been finding those kinds of special targets to go after. And because this is a living drug and in most cases we assume that it will it may never go away or we have to find out a way to get it to go away. If, if that's an alternative. You have to think that you're, there's a potential to forever have that thing targeted. So just to be concrete about this, um, other targets that we've tried, um, there was a CAR T-cell trial for breast cancer. And we know from, the, from news and literature that the common therapy for breast cancer targets a protein that it has called HER2. So the idea was, well, let's see if we can get the T-cells to target HER2. This was a CAR T-cell uh, to HER2. So the very first patient that was infused uh, died from it because it happens that HER2 is also on your lungs and it's on the heart. So this particular patient um, had all those T-cells got stuck in the lungs, had this overwhelming reaction in the lungs, and um, died in a couple days from this inflammatory reaction. So it is possible, but it's not going to be easy. Um, it's going to be, there's a lot of tricks that people are trying to get around this. Um, can we turn the car on and off? Um, and therefore, we, maybe we can tolerate a little bit of, of that kind of toxicity. The way that, they, that we describe this, this part of the toxicity is the, the protein that the car is directed to is the target. The tissue that you want it to kill is the cancer. But there's a potential to still target that, the right target, but on the wrong tissue. So that's an on-target, off-tissue effect. And there's always the possibility that you're going to target something else, and it's going to be an off-target effect. And so there's lots of research going on, uh, lots of grants being given, and a whole lot of industry money being poured into trying to find 
targets that have the least amount of off-tissue and off-target uh, possibility. Right. The, the other concern that, that may be out there is also about geography. You've already mentioned that leukemias uh, seem to be more responsive compared to lymphomas. Uh, even with the same marker of, of CD19. Uh, you know, there have been CAR T cells been investigated for neuroblastoma for, for many years at this point, particularly out of Mike Jensen's group in Seattle. And, and we kind of see this dichotomy where we see some patients who respond really dramatically and others who don't. And then there's always a concern about where can this therapy get to and where can it not get to, particularly to the brain. So can you talk a little bit about what challenges there are? One, do these therapies get everywhere throughout the body? And two, is, is there some concern about, you know, like some uh, sites might be more accessible than others? Um, another one of the reasons that the current one, the, the chimera, was effective is the fact that this is a leukemia that's in the blood and you get to infuse the T cells right into the blood, right? So <laughs> they don't have to go anywhere. They're, you're already putting them where the, the cancer is. But we know that, that T cells can get into tissue. We know that the anywhere that you get an infection, they can find their way that, to that place. It's just, do they have the right signals to do it? So one of the reasons that they perhaps do a little bit less well in lymphoma is getting there. Um, do they actually get to that lymphoma tissue? It's really packed tissue. Do they actually get through it enough to, to clean out all the malignant cells? But for solid tumors, um, it's much more of an issue because it's not a normal path for migration unless the the T cell is triggered, that there's something out there that it needs to go find. And so that is another area where we're probably gonna have to do some additional engineering of the cells to help them target the, the tumor tissue itself. It's kind of the metaphor of you know, fighting on an open battlefield versus taking the battle to the fort. Right, <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and, and, and has there been evidence of infiltration into the CNS? Or has it not been studied yet? Um, there are a couple of case reports and patients who had what we think were CNS-positive disease that it probably cure, uh, cleared. Okay. It's active CNS disease is, is a contraindication right now to, okay. to treatment. But that's more for avoiding toxicities than it is for lack of uh, potential benefit. I think a big challenge is going to be all the immune microenvironment being so immunosuppressive. Mm -hmm. and, but, you know, we've got tools now to counteract that, checkpoint inhibitors, et cetera. So those will probably be useful in combination with these CAR-Ts. Finally, to the, well, the second of the three final topics, other cells that kill cells. We know T cells aren't the only type of cell. Mm -hmm. You prefer NK, NK cells. cells. Yes. <laughs> Tell us about natural killer cells. So just by their name, I mean, they should be better, right? <laughs> they're, called natural they're natural, cells. yeah. So natural killer cells were, were discovered in the 1970s um, and defined basically as white blood cells that were in uh, your body that had this automatic ability to recognize uh, tumor cells and kill them. They're, they're very different in how they recognize disease. Uh, rather than having these specific receptors that need to be trained, like we talk about T-cells having, their job is more to look at a balance of danger signals and safety signals. Is, is this cell behaving properly? Does it act like it's stressed? Does it act like it's undergoing um, transformation? And has a wide range of receptors to try to tease that out. But functionally, they're, they're almost identical to, to T-cells. They have the same killing mechanisms. They release the same kinds of cytokines. 
They are produced by the bone marrow. They're in the blood the same way. So a lot of people have talked about, can they be carrier for the chimeric antigen receptor? Or if you're talking about a car, can be they be the other vehicle for the car? And and then there's also a they're lot of the, potential. They're the BMW to the Mercedes. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's also a lot of potential for using them all by themselves because they have this natural ability to target uh, cancer. Can we use them without having to genetically modify them? Now they may not be as specific for the chimera setting. Those cells are only going to kill cells in the body that have CD19, so they're exquisitely specific. That has to be balanced on the NK cell side with not, if you don't have a specific target, then you don't want to kill everything. You've got to be able to just find cancer. But that's really what they were made to do. So I think we're, we're identifying lots of settings where NK cells are missing that replacing them will improve our current therapies. And all of our antibody therapies almost all of our antibody therapies, rely on NK cells to bind to the antibody as part of their targeting. All of our typical chemotherapy and radiation wipes out NK cells. So it sort of opens up this idea that you could restore NK cell function after a round of chemotherapy and just improve what our normal therapies uh, are able to do. Tell us about your program here in terms of the pipeline or what you're hoping over the next few months or year. The problem with doing NK cell therapy is that there hadn't been a way to grow them. Uh, we've known since probably the late 70s how to grow T cells, but from the time we had certain mitogens and, and antibodies that could stimulate them, people have been growing T cells in their lab um, for all kinds of reasons to study them. But we didn't have an analogous way uh, to grow NK cells, and that was something that we, that my lab actually found a little bit by accident when we were trying to grow T cells. We we had, kind of fell upon the way to, to consistently grow NK cells. And so we've developed that now into a platform that uh, requires a few things in the GMP facility, this good manufacturing uh, facility that enables uh, clinical trials, but have rebuilt that in the last year or so here at Nationwide and are really getting ready to do our first uh, clinical grade manufacturing of NK cells to give to patients. What kind of patients will those be? Initially, we are going to start with neuroblastoma. Um, so, And that's because there is a multi-group trial uh, that we are leading through the NANT consortium. As I mentioned, NK cells uh, are necessary for many of the, the antibodies that we use in therapy. And as Neele mentioned, uh, and Tim, GD2 is an important target uh, for some of our cancers, particularly neuroblastoma. But if you give a patient a chemotherapy and then follow it with antibody, there's no NK cells to follow that antibody with. And so the antibody has to go around and try to do things by itself. And the concept for for this study will be, can we deliver the antibody and large numbers of your own NK cells to facilitate the effect of that antibody and see if that will work better than the antibody alone. When do you think that trial will be open? Not to put you on the spot. Uh, our, no, our <laughs> target date is beginning of the year. Um, we're gonna hope. We're gonna hope for January. Okay, great. So that's January 2018 for for <laughs> right. those of you who are listening in the future. <laughs> um, and then if you also listen to the uh, last podcast with uh, Dr. Cairo, he also mentioned uh, a couple other uh, studies that we we're looking to to collaborate with Dean with. Uh, so it's it's an exciting time for mm-hmm. for what uh, you've got developed. Yeah, the next couple of studies that come right after that will be in AML. 
so at least in 2018, we should have uh, a number of studies that are open for neuroblastoma and AML and then expand on from there. Even though this podcast has gone longer than any other podcast on record, <laughs> at least for us, I think, I can't resist uh, letting you guys have the first stab at our first email, listener email in a long time. And that came from someone named Sarah, I believe, since it says sent from Miss Sarah's iPhone. Uh, and here's the question. Are you guys ready to take it on? Sure. I mean, this is an exciting moment. I'm very excited. <laughs> sure. So, and I think this is something that we've kind of talked about a bunch, and there's lots of aspects to it, and I'm a little worried we could take an entire podcast to address it. <laughs> but here's the question. She writes, and thank you, Sarah, for sending she writes, it seems to me that pediatric oncology physicians are slower to adopt new therapies and research protocols. Why is that? What are the challenges in the field that differ from adult oncology medicine? Neela, you want to take a stab at that? Uh, yeah, I will I'll start with one, actually fighting that oftentimes we take the lead. Uh, CAR-T is a great example where we, you know, the advances were made in PEDS first. And in the last podcast, Dr. Cairo talks about uh, the story with Raspiracase and really going to uh, the pharmaceutical company and saying, no, this is going to be something for our patients. That said, he also highlights some of the, the limitations. And a big one is just having accessibility to the drug and the formulation. You know, a lot of these drugs, particularly the newer agents that are being developed, they're being developed as pills and kind of as static doses. Once they figure out what the right dose is for an adult patient, they say, okay, we're going to make that 60 milligram tablet and that's what's going to be available. So a lot of those, we just can't simply take that dose and apply it to a two-year-old, to an eight-year-old, to a 15-year-old in the same way. So we have to figure out what the right dosing is. Some patients can't take tablets at all. And we have to figure out what is the right way to do it safely. Uh, you know, kids are not little adults, and toddlers are not little teenagers. Every patient kind of has their own set of side effects and their own set of toxicities are, that are somewhat related to age and size. And so we have to figure out a lot of that safety side of things before we can leap into to just grabbing uh, the, the drugs. Um, and then third, a lot of the drugs that are being developed out there, unfortunately, are just it's not as obvious on where that may be useful for a lot of our patients. A lot of adult tumors are uh, driven by what we call point mutations, so specific mutations and specific genes. And in a lot of ch childhood cancers, they may not have those changes. And so it's finding the right drug that's been developed and applying it to ours. Dean, take it from there. I don't know how to quantify this, but I hope I can convince Sarah that second to parents, there is nobody that advocates more for getting new drugs and new trials into kids than pediatric oncologists. We're not the limiting step. We are uh, limited by rational concerns for safety in a vulnerable population. Um, I'll talk about that first point. And the second is, as Neely mentioned, um, drug availability that is partially driven by that accessibility problem, but also driven by commercialization and the fact that, that there's not as much of a commercial interest in pharmaceutical companies to develop drugs for kids. So the first, and I think the most important, and the part that pediatricians buy into, pediatric oncologists included, is that we recognize when it comes to research that kids are a special category. They need new drugs, they need therapy, they need to be um, included in clinical trials. But whenever possible, the FDA mandates and um, good ethics mandates that we try things in adults first who can make their own decision about participating in a clinical trial rather than children who don't have either 
the legal or in most cases um, the developmental ability to make those decisions for themselves. That said, nobody puts a greater percentage of their their patients on clinical trials than pediatric, onco pediatric oncologists. We far exceed adult oncologists in enrolling patients on clinical trials, something like 60% of ours compared to 10% of theirs. And there, I don't think there's any other single pediatric specialty that puts as many of their patients on clinical trials. We're really advocates for, uh, for getting that research done in kids. On the commercial side, I understand. You, you know, the companies uh, have a mandate to to make money with their drugs. Um, we've tried lots of things, both carrots and sticks, uh, to get drug companies to open up a little bit to um, to pediatric indications. They get a little bit longer exclusivity on their drug if they do pediatric trials. There's there's some other things to motivate them, but at the end of the day there are an awful lot more adults with lung cancer than there are kids with neuroblastoma. And so that market is going to drive uh, some of the development. Not only the market, but the, the numbers just drive the ability to get things done to accrue oh, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. a, a trial. I mean, you can get hundreds, if not even thousands of patients in an adult trial, depending on what the trial is, where it takes forever to get you mm -hmm. know a small cadre. We alluded to that, though. The FDA does have some some bend in the rules and you know we, they mm -hmm. tend to approve things with smaller numbers of patients obviously for statistical reasons we want to be as convinced as possible so you want more patients so it's easier to do that in the adult world but uh, both of your answers were very well put i appreciate that input hopefully that helped sarah clarify for her the, the issue and i think it was an appropriate question for us to address in this podcast when we're talking about the first the fda yeah. approval <laughs> of car t cells which is in a childhood indication so yeah. We're going to end on that positive note. That's very exciting. And again, for anybody else, we're happy to read your emails uh, during a future podcast. See, we've proven we do it. Woohoo! Uh, <laughs> so discuss any comments or questions you might have if you send us a note at TWIPO, T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. And thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. That team includes Donna Ludwinski, our executive producer, and Cindy Camel, director of communications. And also thanks to Scott Kennedy and John London, who are the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.